there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and to celebrate the end of 2023, today on the podcast, we are sharing the top 10 strategies as shared by our guests for building a valuable company and punching above your weight when negotiating the sale of your business. Now, there were so many amazing episodes and strategies from the past 50 episodes. So to help us choose which ones we should include on our list, we left it up to you. We chose the top 10 most popular podcast episodes from this past year and in no particular order compiled our favorite tactics from those episodes. Now, I categorize these clips into two buckets. The first five are about building the value of your company. And the next five are about how to punch above your weight when negotiating the sale of your business. Before we jump into today's special, just a quick reminder, if you're not subscribed, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. And lastly, in case you missed one of these episodes that you're hearing and want to go and check those out, I have added links to each one of the episodes shared in this podcast over in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Now, without further ado, here are top 10 strategies from 2023. Enjoy. The first of our five value building strategies comes from Tamar Camel. Tamar's story with Quandle is a classic example of a business gaining monopoly control, which is defined as your ability to control pricing with a unique offering or market position. In Tamar's case, Quandle provided unique data like private jet flight info that was not available elsewhere, giving them a competitive edge and pricing power. And in this clip, Tamar describes how his strategic positioning in the market helped him compete with industry giants, leading to a lucrative acquisition by NASDAQ. So we realized if we're going to compete with someone like Bloomberg and others, big gorillas in the, in the space, we better be offering something they don't have. And this is when we landed on this idea of alternative data. And this is a term used kind of well understood today in the financial market. But alternative data is data that is relevant to a professional investor, but doesn't come from the, fin- from the financial domain in the first place. And in the world we live in today, there's data kind of being created everywhere all the time. It's ubiquitous. It's coming It's a byproduct of things that are happening in every company. I often say, if you could just tap into every database in the world in some magical way, you could know the state of the global economy in real time. You could know there's nothing you can't know. Well, there's one example that I was reading about in prep for this interview. I think it was an article about Quantum and Financial Times, and it described the use of aircraft lease information as a predictor of M&A activity. Yeah. Can you walk us through how aircraft leases has anything to do with M&A or how it would be sort of a, 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 a canary in the coal mine or a bellwether to M&A activity? Yeah, that's a, it's a great example. It's a good, it's great example of alternative data. So here's the thing with how that works. Um, there's all these airplanes flying around and they're all, they all have transponders on them and they're all broadcasting exactly who they are and where they are. They're doing that by law. And that data is in the public domain. It's radio waves. So that data is being picked up by transmitters all over the world. And so if you kind of work with the right people, 
and cobble together the right databases, you can actually track the movement of every plane in the world at all times. And if you, That's kind of freaky. Yeah, it is. Secondly, if you happen to know who owns these planes or who leases these planes, you can start inferring things about business activity. So, you know, if you see um, um, a plane going from a, from a small city that happens to be the headquarters of a big company and it's going to another small city that happens to be a, a headquarters of a big company that competes with that company – Right. You can start saying, oh, these guys are having some pretty high level discussions about something. Right. That's so cool. And would you know that it's a private jet versus a, like a like a United yeah. flight? Could you, would you yeah, know yeah. that? So the thing is, the, the, that's crazy. You know, it's, 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 yeah, it's pretty neat. It's noisy. It's never definitive. Right. Because you don't know who's on the plane. You don't know if it's the CEO's flying over or, you know, you don't know. But. But if it's the private jet, you assume it's someone pretty Somebody senior. important, right? So, so here's the thing with that particular data set. It never tells you anything definitive, but it gives you some hints, right? So if you're a professional oh, analyst wow. watching a particular space and you already suspect that something's happening, this might put you over the edge to say, aha, I knew it. Something's going down here, right? Um, but, but just zooming out. This is a great example of alternative data because you're not you're not using any data that derives from the company or from Wall Street or from the government. It's it's not illegal. You're not stealing this. It's all in the public domain. Exactly. And so the so that's the data we actually offered that um, on Quandle. Next, we hear from Ian Frazier, a world-renowned golf club fitter who founded Tour Experience Golf or TXG. Like a lot of serviced business owners. When Ian started the company, his clients wanted to work with him. But Ian knew that to grow TXG into a valuable business, he needed his clients to be comfortable working with his team. This clip highlights how Ian was able to replace himself inside his company, leading to a lucrative acquisition offer from Club Champion, one of the largest club fitting operations in the world. You mentioned the standard, and I want to go back to this because I think a lot of our listeners um, are struggling with replicating themselves. You are, by any measure, a master of your craft. I'll say it, you won't, but I will. And and recognize the world over for that as a master fitter, first and foremost. Somehow you had to duplicate yourself. And Mm -hmm. and your answer to my question, you know, what was how did you replicate the standard? You said, well, it started with me you know, working below market wages and really understanding the craft for 15 mm-hmm. years. I get that. But go further for me because, because there are lots of experts, chefs, graphic designers, writers, photographers who are brilliant at what they do, but can't get other people to be as good as them or even mm-hmm. close to as good as them. So how did right. you get other fitters to, to kind of get close to how good you are? Like what was like specifically, what did you do? So the, the specifics on it, uh, I, th- I think, come down to ultimately the people that we try to hire. They're, you know, sort of EQ rather than IQ um, was, was much more appealing to me. There was, you know, lots of people who, you know, I think were, were maybe from the offset better, more experienced fitters. But I think the team of people that I always wanted to build had to first and foremost have have very, very high sort of you know eq so when it comes to their customer their their ability to relate to a customer 
you know, I can't teach you to be a good person. I can't teach you to do the right thing when the wrong thing is right in front of you. I can teach you what this shaft does with that head at that length and how we build the clubs. I can teach you all of that stuff. And, and you know, there's ways in which we've done that at our very first store, um, our first main store, our flagship fitting location here in Toronto. You know, I position myself in the middle bay of three. Uh, I designed the facility to be different from our first facility, which was three closed rooms. This facility, I made an open concept. So I could always be fitting my clients with two my two other sort of trainees either side of me so that both I could talk to my client, they could hear me, and I had an ear either side of me to hear them. So I was able to multiply things that way always. And, um, and, and I would say that was one of the most successful things that we'd done. And then you know, so far rolling out that model um, as we grew. I love that. I love that because there's nothing better than learning from the person while you're in situ when you're doing the work yourself. How did you evaluate people's EQ? I mean, was there a question you asked in a job interview? Was there a uh, psychometric test that you had everybody do? Like, what was your way to measure that? It was, it was, there was a lot of um, question and there was a lot of sort of analysis of, what would you do in this scenario? What would you do in that scenario? Um, what was your favorite question? Um, we would always present a question that was that was for the the benefit of the, the the company versus the benefit of the client. And if if somebody if somebody ever leaned towards the the decision to make a decision for the business over the decision for the client, I, I would never favor that that person or, or you know that sort of uh, moral compass. For me. Our, our business was was always had to be, we always had to present ourselves as a, a customer service centric company that fitted golf clubs. And that was, that always came first. So as long as they had, a, you know, a customer service sort of mind with them, you know, we could always sort of teach them sort of other things. And, you know, the group of people we had, I started with three guys that have worked with me before. So I knew I had a good foundation of experience with them. And then after that, we, we just brought in people that, Again, as we assess them, had a very, very, you know, mostly high intelligence. Now, if you have plans to hire in 2024, this next clip is for you. It comes from Chad Rubin, who founded Scubana, a tool specifically designed to streamline the operations of an e-commerce store across diverse channels. And in this clip, Chad shares his three-part strategy to hiring high-potential employees. His strategy helped him hire great people for pennies on the dollar, grow to $5 million in ARR and score a lucrative exit from 3PL Central. I think actually the hiring process in general that we experience in life is fairly flawed. You, you enter into a room or a Zoom room now with somebody, it's a 30-minute call, it's a 45-minute call, and you're supposed to base their performance and relationship for the next couple of years on that one conversation. And maybe it's, you know, I'm having it and then someone else is having it. So now I've changed the process completely. Uh, we change our process internally. Number one is um, <laughs> I really look for high, high potential entry level employees, especially uh, in the early days. I have an assessment test that I've built. Oh, which I'm, what's on the, what, what kind of questions would you ask? Yeah. So, firstly, the assessment test, I used to use a software to do assessments. And it's really, it was an IQ test, and they started to beat those tests using ChatGPT. <laughs> So suddenly all the people are getting A's on this test. And it's like, wait, what? So I actually built a different test. It's using, uh, 
it's using something that I've developed that looks you can find online. It's, it's there's an autism test that's based. It's a graphical representation that identifies patterns, and it's it's as close as you can get to an IQ test. I developed it in type form, and then I have it automatically zapped using Zapier into Google Sheets, and it's automatically graded. So right away, I can sort of funnel my process down. So the first thing is in my job description, I have a little golden egg that I plan. Like if you're responding to this job, please just in the first sentence, make sure you read this uh, entirely, share with us your favorite 90s band. Great. They share the 90s band, now they've passed part one. The second is this assessment test, which is part two. And that's been amazing. I really, and, and by the way, I, I got five out of six on this. There's six questions. I call it the creativity quiz. It's six questions, five out of six I got. I didn't have patience for the last one. Probably could have done it, but I was like, yeah, I want to do this right now. And uh, so, so essentially I hire people that get typically six out of six, but my, 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 my limit is five. And so some people are like, well, why do you, why do you only, why does that have to be six out of six? You didn't get six out of six. Why do you hold people to a higher standard? And the reason is that I want to hire people that are smarter than me. I want people that are better than me to join the company. Did you call it an autism test? It's, there, there is a, I just looked at some tests of pattern recognition online. And uh, there's some tests around autism specifically, but I, I don't call it, it's not necessarily that, but I've developed some of these patterns and embedded them into type form that allow you to identify patterns in a test and then select the score. So it'll give you three different blocks. And the third block is missing. You just have to identify what is the pattern in the third block. And you're looking the for first creativity. Question, well, the, the first question is actually given to you. So some people, believe it or not, have gotten the first question wrong. So, uh, but the first question is given to you. So there's really five questions that you can answer. And it's called the, it's called, at least I internally call it a creativity quiz. Can you give me an example of one of the questions? Not the one that's answered, but give me... Oh, no. So it'll show you three different six, it'll show you six images and their patterns. And you have to identify, or sorry, nine images, and they have to identify the ninth image. So there's one image that's missing, and you have to identify the pattern that makes it whole. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. And then uh, just to continue on my process here, this is all to not make mistakes, right? Because, like, I, I can tell you, I've been through so many painful hires and painful mistakes where we're both hurt in the process. And it's, it's unintentional, but it's because of the hiring process. I, I feel that the hiring process is broken in my experience. This is my way to essentially not hire and make mistakes in the process and <laughs> alleviates a massive burden because I, I really don't like having to have those parting conversations of firing people. Nor I. So there's the creativity test. Then what, what's the other, what other elements do you use to so this is a new addition. So this is a new addition that I've added. Uh, it's new. And I have someone helping me around this, which is the culture index. It's more of a personality test, uh, really just to figure out if you have the right butt in the right seat from a personality perspective. And I am not trained in culture index. I can't speak on it that well. I've, I've hired somebody that essentially looks at the tests and gives me feedback on them. And if I have like some intuition where I'm like 50-50 on a candidate, this helps me become 51-49 one way or the other. Got it. Got it. Up next is Brad Lorge, who founded Premonition, a technology company that offers logistics software to streamline a company's delivery operations. Now, Premonition was acquired by ShipIt, in 2022 for $20.5 million, an implied valuation of just under seven times 
annual contract value or ACV. Now, most software company founders end up giving away a lot of their equity to fund their growth. But in Brad's case, he was able to maintain 80% ownership of Premonition by getting his customers to fund their growth, which he shares in this next clip. And in retrospect, would you change anything about the way you finance the journey? Uh, I've realized hindsight's 2020, and it's always yeah. easy to kind of look back and go, oh, we shouldn't have given money here. We should have shit. But, you know, for, for the listeners who are thinking of maybe raising some money to get them to their the vision, I'd just be curious if there's anything you would do differently or, or maybe have a do-over if you could change anything about the way you financed it. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the, th I mean, at the end of the day, um, 20% is a big chunk of the business, but I think, you know, in, in the context of VC funded businesses, I think we did all right there. Um, part of, part of how we got through to that point is we, uh, often negotiated prepayments from our key customers and, you know, we explained the phase of business we were in, explained, um, you know, very transparently that, you know, we are growing and, and funding's needed and we'd say, look, if, you know, uh, uh, you're able to prepay a year or a year and a half of um, your uh, license fees, we can give that back to you in benefits, but you're also helping us grow the company and, you know, you're investing in our ability to deliver you a good product now. What was the most challenging rebuttal you heard to that pitch when you're talking to customers and saying, hey, if you can prepay, you know, that'll help finance it and we're good guys here in Sydney and helping the world. And like, what was the toughest negotiating response to that that you heard? Yeah. How did you overcome it? So, so there was kind of two. Um, one was, you know, hang on, guys, are you and, you know, you're not going to be solvent if we go with you and fair enough. Like <laughs> that's a, that's a, you know, you, you really, um, you, you're being quite vulnerable in that moment when you go through and, um, you know, then you definitely need to be able to turn up with your forecasts and your P and L and your balance sheet and just allay everyone's fears because, uh, uh, you know, you, that's the last thing you want in one of these deals is a concern that you're just going to be, you know, one of those 90% of startups that, that don't make it. Um, so you, you know, you're trying to build confidence while asking for a pre-made payment. The other one, I think was probably a, uh, uh, actually a more important one in hindsight that I didn't really understand at the time, but, um, we would sometimes get a customer saying, well, if we prepay, how do we keep you accountable? And it's amazing how much trouble it can cause in a deal if a customer doesn't feel like they can hold you accountable. Um, you know, I think, I think whenever, you know, every, every project hits trouble, you know, you're trying to do anything big, it's difficult. Um, when those moments hit, uh, a customer needs to trust you as the provider. They need to trust you as individuals that you're going to uh, work with integrity and, and be honest with them, but they also need to trust that they've got recourse. And if you don't allow for that recourse to exist in a meaningful way, then you end up seeing behaviors that are not super helpful in stressful moments. Um, so, so that, I think that is actually the other side is just making sure that you are willing to be held accountable and give your customers recourse if, if something's not successful. The last of our value building strategies comes from Sam Parr. Sam's episode was one of our most popular of 2023 and covers the story of how he built and sold his email newsletter, The Hustle. This clip, Sam shares how he grew his email list from zero to a hundred thousand subscribers. Well, how are you building your list 
what, what was your most successful tactic to getting new subscribers? The first 100,000 subscribers, it was through me blogging a lot. And hmm. so I would go to Reddit and Hacker News and other forums, and I would see what topics people were interested in. And I would write blog posts about them, and then I would post it in those communities, and they would go viral. And not all of them went viral, but I would write like one to four articles a day. And some of them would go viral. And so we would do sometimes like really crazy things. For example, I had a friend that was really depressed and he started microdosing LSD in order to kind of self-medicate. And he like researched it, but of course it's illegal. So, but he like researched it and out of, as a very like medicinal way, like, you know, studies show that like psilocylum, which I think is in mushrooms and then like LSD, like it might actually help with alleviate some of my problems. And so I wrote about like, you know, I said, I'm testing, I wrote, I actually wrote it, but I did it from his perspective where, where when I interviewed him of like, you know, I'm testing LSD to cure my depression day one, here's how it is. And I would like write things like that. Or we would have someone live on Soylent for 30 days and that would go viral. Or like, I knew a guy who used to plagiarize authors on Amazon on these book topics, like how to sleep with women and he would post it and make 60 grand a month. And I thought that was horribly unethical and sleazy and everything. And so I wrote a story about it. And so I would write about these like crazy sometimes things and we would get like 500,000 to a million people a month coming to our website right off the bat. And then I had really good pop-ups that said, oh no, not another pop-up. Okay, look, while you're here, this article you're reading, it's about someone doing something crazy that's not exactly what we do all the time. You see, we're, uh, we are the hustle where daily newsletter sign up. And if you don't like it, I'll send you a dollar or like, we would just like have silly, like attention grabbing things like that. And you know, that's how we got our first hundred to 200,000 people in the first year or so. And then after that, we created an affiliate program or like a referral program where we would send you stickers and, uh, hoodies and things like that. If you referred more people. And then we also realized our, our business model. If we're making a dollar a month per subscriber with our advertising business model, we could, and they stay with us for like you know a couple of years, we could definitely spend a dollar fifty or two dollars to acquire new customers. And so we started buying advertising on Facebook, uh, on in other in other newsletters and places like that. Okay, now let's dive into the year's best strategies for punching above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. First, we'll hear from the lead hostess negotiator of the FBI and author of New York Times bestselling book, Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. In this clip, Chris shares the power of silence in a negotiation to sell your business and how to use it to your advantage when speaking with an acquirer. You got to know from the other side, do they mean it? Do they have, you know, as other than their argument, like, do they mean it? Or are they just asking for more because they're expecting to land closer to you? And if you got a bet and, and, and I, you know, we live in a Las Vegas world, you're, you're placing your bets. What's most likely? I happen to live in Las Vegas, but I've been using this analogy for years. If you had to bet, they're asking for more than they're willing to settle for because that's the way they're used to doing business the quickest. So you got to know where their lines really are. You know, their how and what questions are a great way to get there. You know, another, uh, Black Swan skill to master the nuance of is the label. Cause again, you're exploring to pay the space between yes and no. So they, they've laid out the argument for you. It appears that the argument is clear. However, 
there's always stuff they left out. And so the label is, seems like you've given us a lot of thought. And then the critical moment is what we call shut up. You, you lay a label out and you got to go dead silent. You got to go Elon Musk dead silent. Like, um, I'm a fan of both Elon Musk and, um, uh, Lex Friedman. Listen to one of Elon's interviews, but. You know, he's been on like four times and there's a famous point in time. You ask Elon a question, you got to sit there and shut up while it bakes in his brain. And one of the questions he asked, Elon was dead silent for 22 seconds. Now, most people can't stay silent for a second. And three seconds seems like an eternity. And Elon sat there for 22 seconds. Like, try counting that out. Try to look the next time in one of your conversations when somebody says something to you. And I challenge you to go dead silent for two seconds without bursting into flames. But a good label, you got to go dead silent. You got to go Elon Musk dead silent. And you got to let it bake into the other side's brain. And you got to wait for them to respond. And you throw out a good label after they've just made a great case which most likely is rehearsed and most likely there's more to it. You're seeing the tip of the iceberg on their thinking. They're looking for collaboration. They're looking for you to help them think. They're looking to explore the space between yes and no. The simple label seems like you've given us a lot of thought is the perfect label to find out what's really going on. And you got to wait for the other side to, to react. I mean, there's a lot more to labeling, but that's one of the most effective labels that are almost under. I can't think of a circumstance where it's not an appropriate response to be a phenomenal information gathering move on your part to explore the space between yes and no. I love that. And it also puts the ball back in their court without giving anything up from your side. It's back in their court. And it also buys you some time to reflect and think and process yourself, which all of those things. And, yeah. and one of the critical things is it puts it back in their court in a way that they don't feel coerced or cornered by. Now, you've kind of left them in a position where they're probably going to open up to you but they're not gonna feel like they have to. Like a question causes people to feel like they have to respond. And some people don't like to be made to feel like they have to respond. And consequently, since they don't like it, they won't. But there's something about the way a label hits the brain that just draws people out in a way that's almost impossible to resist. Our next negotiating tip comes from Lori Morton, who founded AeriHub, a customizable mobile app that helps facility managers efficiently control building information and operations, including compliance records, blueprints, and employee hiring. Morton generated more than $1 million in recurring revenue by winning customers like Netflix, Michelin, GE, Bosch, and many others. And in this clip, Lori shares how she created a bidding war for her company, resulting in a lucrative acquisition offer, including 100% of her cash coming up front. So what I did next was, I'm sure most business owners get these unsolicited emails. You know, dear president, we want to buy your company. We want to invest in your company. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would get at least one a week, sometimes two a week. And so um, I started responding to some of those. 
And I would pick and choose which ones I respond to, the ones that seemed somewhat relevant, at least got, you know, my gender right and one Mr. Morton. So, <laughs> um, and I started having conversations and that taught me a lot because it's different talking about selling your company versus selling your product. Much different. What did you find different about it? Um, I had to look for all the ways our company is valuable to an acquirer rather than what our software can bring to the table. Um, I looked, I, I learned to talk about the things I felt like um, a potential buyout might look for, like the, the incredible market opportunity. I did more research on the market to find out exactly who were the competitors. I did more work to find out what they were charging than I'd done before. Um, I started segmenting our income. You know, which sector is bringing in the most? Is it hospitals? Is it university? Is it private sector? Um, you know, it caused me to think about it differently than what I've done trying to sell just the software. Mm-hmm. And I created a value proposition document. And that document, it changed so much over the course of the year of me going through this exercise because I kept learning. To be clear, Any the value the- proposition was not of buying the software. It was of buying the company. You create a one right. major, here's the value proposition. We're a growing market. There's all this upside, right. that kind of stuff. So where does it go from there? Are you are these are these solicitors that these ten conversations are they are they starting to increase their offers from the kind of two x revenue? Are you starting to get a sense that there may be more on the table? Um, yeah, I started getting a sense there was more. I felt like the more I talked about my company, the more ideal it was for an inquirer an acquirer to take it. Um, it's an emerging market. And we were early to market. We had a stable product and we were doing work with the federal government, which takes a ton of effort. Um, your software has to be just locked down. Um, and then we, we got a patent on our software that came in early 2022. Um, so yeah, the more I talked about our company and who we were, the more valuable I felt we were. And it finally came about that I ended up with two companies um, that were making offers, written offers to me, which is pretty cool. Um, so I guess you could call it a bidding war. It's definitely a bidding conversation. <laughs> um, and, and it went back and forth. Um, I ended up choosing the company, not because they were the highest number, but I felt they were the best fit. The, the other company offered me a lot more money for my company, but they also wanted it to a big part of it be in an earnout over two years. And, um, you know, I'm last summer when I was working on this, I'm approaching 60 and I'm thinking, do I really want to work that hard for the next two years to try and ramp it up? So I ended up choosing the, the one company, um, JDM there in Canada, because they just felt like they were the better fit. We, we were aligned on our values. Um, they seemed to get it the software side, what we do. And for them, Airy Hub was a strategic buy. They had a lot of companies that do um, facility management, um, like work order systems, asset management, but they didn't have anything like Airy Hub that handles all the information. So it was a, it was a nice fit with their complemented companies. Yeah. And and can you give a sense of the earnout deal? What proportion of the, the one you did not accept, what proportion of the deal were they... Uh, putting at risk in an earnout, like was it sort of a big slice? Slide, like, give us a. It was a big slice. If I, um, I, I'm thinking it was at least fifty percent, maybe oh, maybe sixty wow. percent. Was yeah, it was a big chunk of it was earnout. Um, and they and they let me play with the earnout numbers and percentages and kind of tweak it a bit. Um, and, and I really thought about it. You know, John, if I'd been thirty five, I probably would have jumped on that. 
I would have been willing to try and reach and stretch and grow. But honestly, I think I had taken Aerie as far as I could take it. I felt like the next person or company to lead Aerie needed to launch it globally um, with a big marketing and a big sales plan. Um, I, I took a very physical, conservative approach. And so I didn't take big chances. I didn't do big investments. It was time for someone to do that. Gosh, so I was happy to step back. It sounds like the, the perfect business because you you did run it so fiscally conservatively, which which served you well. But for someone mm-hmm. uh, or an organization that had a higher risk tolerance, you could see how they could really blow it up and and, and expand it dramatically. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think the new owners got a great deal on the company. Um, it was good timing for me to step back. My my only child went away to college a month before I closed on the business. And so now I've got more flexibility. I can visit him in Wisconsin. So uh, yeah, it worked out well. Our third negotiation strategy comes from Tyler Smith, who grew Skyslope to approximately $12 million in annual recurring revenue before its acquisition by Fidelity National Financial at a valuation of over $80 million. Now, in this clip, Tyler describes how he got Fidelity to increase their initial $40 million offer to a valuation of $80 million. Fidelity was interesting because they were off by a multiple from their first LOI. So, I mean, from our top number, from from the company we knew that would never close, but they were off by a multiple. So when they wrote the original LOI, I mean, our, our bankers like, guys, we he likes you guys the best, but you're off, and not only are you off, you're off by a multiple. So like, you you need to come significantly up. When you say and, off by a multiple, are you referring to like one turn of ARR? So more than twelve million dollars. Uh, so let's say let let let's say um, our our top offer was a hundred million dollars. Fidelity's opening offer was forty. Okay, you're off by. Hey, you're not only off by like five or 10 million, you're off by a multiple, like double your number and you're off. You're, that's how far off you guys are on your initial offer. Wow. Um, and why did so you not, why, why not just dismiss them outright? I mean, like that, that, that is not even in the ballpark of what. That, that's what my mind would have said as a realtor who helps clients negotiate. You get a low ball offer that's so far. You have a house listed at a million and someone writes you an offer at 500,000. You're like, don't even reply. And so I said, I think, during this process, this is, I think, a really important key is you're running a business, stressful. You're in startup land, stressful. You're vulnerable because you've exposed your financials to people. So any entrepreneur just feels vulnerable. You're like, now all my competitors know my data, all my numbers. You know, they know how big and little I am. And it's just you feel uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's a dark place. And you don't know the outcome of what this could be. And the outcome could be, which we said, we don't have to sell. And that was true. We don't. We can still grow. We can still make some money. But it's still, that would suck. You know, all of our competitors know everything about us and we didn't sell. And you go through these, these you know, these, these um, stages in life as an entrepreneur and a founder. There's just, it's, they're uncomfortable. They're stressful. There's, it's dark and it's lonely and you're on an island. You don't have much people. That's why YPO and EO is so important in my opinion. You know, you're, I always say it's like an analogy of a duck above water. You're cold, calm, and collected, but underneath you're freaking swimming, paddling like a freaking duck. It's, it's okay, wild. so back to the question, why not just dismiss it? Like you, 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 well, because you have to trust people you hire. We hired a banker. Our banker made a recommendation said, let me do what I do. This is what I do. This is why you hired me. It's, and, and he's telling me, as I would tell a seller, 
of a real estate. Hey, you hired me as a professional to get this done. You're emotional to it. Of course you want to dismiss it. Ego is getting involved. Don't bring a knife to a shotgun fight, kid. This is what we do all day, every day. So what you have to do is you have to commit, submit, and trust the process. So what did he know that, like, why did he think there was another multiple in fidelity? He's a good banker. He, he, he's got a very good pulse on them. He runs, I'm telling you, he runs a very, I've been on the other side of the deal. Let me give an example. I'm trying to acquire companies and he's the banker. And I'm like, I hate you as the banker representing the, the, the seller. I don't like it. It's not fun. I know, your t- I know your tricks. I know here he's very strategic with what he says, what he doesn't say. He listens very well. He will go silent at sometimes. The art of negotiation where I'm like, what the heck? did the Zoom go out? What's going on? Why aren't you talking? Now I'm the loser who's talking, right? So, and I know all this because he taught me it when we did our deal. Next, we hear from Kieran Merchant, who founded the aviation consulting firm Merchant Aviation and sold it less than two years later to Aeroport de Paris. And in this clip, Kieran breaks down how he was able to get ADP to increase their initial bid and ultimately score an acquisition offer representing a high single-digit multiple of his EBITDA. They had raised the the mid-level folks had sort of said two times EBITDA, half up front, et cetera. Did you go back to the more senior entrepreneurial folks and get kind of give them your number? It wasn't two, it was X or yes. did you go back to them with something? Yes, so, so I had done the valuation and it is like, again, like, so this is one of the things that that anybody who wants to do this thing that that the value of uh, having good friends, uh, good consultants is 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 very very valuable, and it is something that I would say that is 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 extremely nerve wracking because you are spending money on a potential that may never uh, materialize which is extremely, extremely important to understand to surround yourself with people who actually will give you sound advice. Uh, you don't have to listen to anybody. At the end of the day, you have to make your own decision. But having a, a point of view that is not yours, because when you're developing the company, it's your baby and you're emotional. You have to detach yourself uh, because everything that you make is an emotional decision. People who are not vested in your company can give you that objective point of view. And that was very important to me. So, so I hired a company that, was, uh, that does standard evaluation. Uh, I could not afford them. So I kind of made a deal with them. And I said, look, you know, I don't think that I can have this thing. But... Uh, uh, I think there is a potential that if this company acquires us, you could probably get some future business as well. I can bring you on. So you need to basically give me something. And I said, here's the reason. I'm, I'll give you my homework of how I've come up with a number. So I gave them a, a full research material of why we think that a certain uh, um, the, 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 the services that we were offering, the company that that we had built was worth a certain amount. Uh, and so I had a third-party valuation, which had three columns. One was the standard, you know, two times the multiplier of EBITDA. It happens with this. Here's the company that basically has gone with five or six 
times EBITDA. And here are the companies that have done eight to 10 times EBITDA. Uh, so they kind of did it in a very smart way to basically say, well, we've done our, it could be, you take whatever you want to take out of this valuation. And I said always that, look, it is, for me, the first two, two columns do not matter. It's the last column. Because I'm selling you $105 billion worth of infrastructure consulting work. I'm not selling you what I'm making. So either you take it or you leave it. And lastly, we again hear from Chris Voss. When you go to sell your business, you'll probably have terms that you don't want to budge on. And in this clip, Chris shares how to handle your deal breakers. Chris, would you, if there were certain terms that were deal breakers for you, for example, oftentimes we hear from entrepreneurs, I will not do an earnout under any circumstances whatsoever. I will not right. do an earnout. Or, you know, I, I, they must hire all of my employees when I sell my company. If they're not prepared to take all of my employees, I will not sell my company. Like if they have a hard line in the sand, would you coach them to reveal that to kind of get to whether there's a deal there early in the negotiation? No, I mean, you want, you, you want to get there, but you want to make the other side work to get there. I mean, the more you try to shortcut the process, the more you actually whet the other side's appetite for more. So you want them to feel like they earned everything they got. And if you, if you know, if you know you got some boundaries and it comes up, you know, you start by asking a hard question. How am I supposed to transfer a successful organization to you? If you're going to get rid of the people that made it successful, I mean, you know, a term to the other side adjusts when it costs them. Now you've got a well-oiled machine that gave it the value that you currently have it on the table for. Now they don't care that you're loyal to your employees. They don't care you've been to their kids' birthdays. They don't have any of the personal relationships. None of that matters to them. They're not invested in it. They are, however, invested in a successful operation. So if their term of change is going to cost them money, now you've got their attention. Like I don't care that I don't I don't care that you're godfather to your secretary's grandchildren. I do care how well this company's gonna function without that secretary or without that executive assistant or without that chief of staff. Like changing out employees is expensive, more expensive than keeping on the people who know what they're doing. And that's your reason for getting them to take a look at hanging on to the employees. Like they don't care that you have emotional attachments to them. They're attached to the efficiency of the organization. And empathy is about understanding what it looks like to the other side and getting out of your own way and then phrasing a term that they need to give you because it's in their interest. And many of these terms, like especially, you know, keeping on employees, the reasons for that to get them to change their mind is if not doing it costs them. And that'll get their attention. And there you have it for today's episode. Thank you all so much for being a loyal listener of the podcast. 
you want to help support this show, as always, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And lastly, if you missed any of the episodes that we featured here on the podcast, I have linked those up in our show notes section, which you'll be able to find over at builttosell.com, along with everything referenced in today's episode. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who always help bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, be sure to visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Happy New Year, and we'll talk to you again next week.